by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Inglorious Bastards, starring Brad Pitt, Christoph Waltz, Michael Fassbender, Eli Roth, Diane Kruger, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Welcome back, listeners. Today we're opening up film two in the cask of the films of Tarantino, part one. And today we're going to be talking about Inglorious Bastards from 2009. Matt, I'm excited to talk about this one, as I'm sure you are. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have an interesting podcast. This is going to be, I think, the first time that you are going to be as different on a film as this one's going to be. Excellent. How much of the redemption do we have for this? I'm just I'm kidding. I'm going to need a bottle. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So, Matt, why don't you go and go ahead and pour us some of the redemption? You know, we opened this up last week to some pretty favorable reviews. And while you're doing that, I'm going to start reading some viewer response from last week. You know, we asked the question, I think it was, you know, pretty good one talking about your three favorite quentin tarantino characters and we had some pretty good responses so cheers matt cheers jesse cheers listeners hmm. before you get into that and give me this i gotta just ask you go ahead is this your favorite bottle that we've tried so far it's definitely up there of, of bourbon i know we've tried some some rise and some scotches and some other things but i think of bourbons this yeah. is my look basil's always the go-to yeah. But for new stuff that we roll out, this is, I think I'm in love. This one's pretty good. That Booker's Reserve oh, that that, that we had was, was a, another good one. But yeah, this one's definitely up there. I could totally go off the shelf and get this one again. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited to see which bottle's coming up next. But did they name their bottle of the month yet? They one? did. I think it's a, a High West. It's a yeah. it's a bur- a, a bourbon. Yeah. So I'd be anxious to try that. I've never tried any of their bourbons before. Cool. So shout out to, to Josh Dugan, who um, he listed his top three as Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs, uh, Samuel Jackson from Jackie Brown, and George Clooney from 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 Dust Till Dawn, which I, that's a Tarantino written screenplay, and George Clooney is pretty good in that, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and shout out to Mr. Brett Reese, who listed his top three as Django from Django Unchained. Hans Landa from the film we're going to be reviewing today, Glorious Bastards. And then also um, his number one from the same film, Lieutenant Aldo Rain, saying, uh, Brad Pitt is just so outrageous in this role. He delivers his dialogue in a way that makes me laugh, even when it's not necessarily funny. He almost seems to be more lucky than good at what he does, but gets the job done regardless. So I think we're going to talk about both those characters in detail today, but thank you for, for the feedback and chiming in on, on your top threes. Those are, those are three really good really good list so we'd love to read what you all think about questions flight nightcap and mm-hmm. if you want to just weigh in on something regarding the the happy hour please by all means anything you can uh direct message us on instagram or facebook or hit us up on email at risemileproductions at gmail.com we'll read them on the next episode so we have done this one too all the responses we've gotten so far because i know you spend a lot of time reading them and we're busy with them and it's coming good excellent so. I, I love every second of it. i love engaging with the listeners and whether it's you know, a healthy debate or it's, it's something something interesting. Yeah, lo- love love doing that part of, of this with the podcast, which it's kind of just kind of just taken off like as as of late with the responses. So thank thank you to all the listeners and keep getting a bunch of new listeners every every week. So thank that's you. the beauty of film, isn't it? Yeah, how two people can see the exact same film yeah. at similar places in their lives 
and have such different takeaways from it. Oh, definitely. And uh, one of the other great things that uh, to kind of piggyback on that too is kind of the rewatchability factor of film. You know, being able to go back and see things again that you've seen before, but maybe after listening to the podcast, you can see them in a different light. Maybe a little more critical of the light or just with a, a third eye versus the two you have. Yeah. So, excellent. So, let's lead on into the flight that we have for this week, sticking in the Tarantino universe. You know, last week we talked about our three favorite characters. So, we're going to kind of switch it just a little bit and go with our top three uh, performances in a Tarantino film. So, as we always, three, three, two, two, one, one. Number three for me is Bill from Kill Bill, David Carradine. Excellent. I really like him in this film. Because the route that he chooses to take as the villain is understated and in control, um, but almost with a purpose that's more loving than it is hateful. He truly does care for Uma Thurman as the bride, Mm -hmm. and what he's put her through is explained masterfully Mm -hmm. in 25 minutes. And it's a long time to get to meet him in that movie. Exactly. But I actually do think that that payoff is is worth it for me. That's going to be an issue for me today. Mm-hmm. Set up some payoffs, especially with Tarantino films. And I think in this one it delivers. David Carradine, I think, is a perfect choice. He just is so in control of himself and the character in that scene. It makes me think, I wish I'd had some more David Carradine. I wish he had been in more of part volume one. Yeah, <laughs> like he's... Right. Kind of really doesn't show up until that second part towards the end there. I almost so. wish if it was The Search for Bill mm-hmm. and then Kill Bill. Yeah. I think that would be a more appropriate title mm-hmm. for those films, which are really one film, but too long to be together. <laughs> Find Bill. Kill Bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Okay, what's Excellent. your three? Excellent. My three, uh, I'm actually going to go back to Reservoir Dogs for this one, and I'm actually going to go with Harvey Keitel as Mr. White. Uh, we talked about last week how Tarantino actually owes quite a bit to Harvey Keitel for you know getting that film off the ground, but I think he puts in a really good performance and kind of being the the glue of that entire heist group as everyone's kind of losing their minds, whether they're bleeding out or just being belligerent or psychotic. He kind of tries to keep it all together, and you know as we go and see his backstory and his his pathway into that, you know. You really kind of feel for this relationship that he has with with Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, and uh, you're kind of sad a little bit about what he has to do in in the end of that film. And then, of course, we get the Mexican standoff scene. But I've always really liked him in that seat in that in that film. So yeah, number three, Harvey Keitel. My number two is also from Reservoir Dogs. Okay, Steve Buscemi as Mr. Pink. Thought about that one. Yeah, it's a tough one. The weaselly uh, nature that kind of suits Steve Buscemi that he portrays in this. Uh, if Charlie Day was likable, and you know how I feel about Charlie Day, you're he'd so, be Steve Buscemi. You're so hard on him. I hate him, but I don't hate Steve Buscemi. Okay. Uh, for all of the people that have not seen that mm-hmm. film, you do need to, if you consider yourself a Quentin Tarantino fan, you have to do Reservoir Dogs. That should be your gateway into this world, actually. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we might have some some differences in opinion on this particular mm-hmm. statement, but for me, it's a career that's been filled with more missteps than steps. That's not one. Mm-hmm. He's in control. He's not caught up in Tarantinoville. And everything that makes him good when he's good is done in a way that's natural and not sort of reheated and warmed up because it worked in this film. Yeah. The violence, the dialogue, 
the slow burn effect, mm-hmm. uh, the terrific characters. About the only thing that's absent in this movie that I think he does really well, mm-hmm. especially latter yeah. Tarantino, I think he writes women really well. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. in this film, though. Well, women completely absent from this film, yeah. But back to Reservoir Dogs. See it and appreciate the two characters we've mentioned, the Kaitel and Bushimi as Mr. Pink and Mr. White. Excellent. I just love how neurotic he is through that, that whole film. He's just like so on edge and he just like, he can never mellow out from not, not tipping to this, to that. Like, yeah. yeah, he's pretty great. Yep. Okay, my number two, we're going to go to Django Unchained for this one. And Leonardo DiCaprio is Calvin Candy. I think this is another kind of, you know, understated performance, you know, Leo was nominated for countless Oscars, and I honestly, he was he won for the 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 worst possible movie. It should have been either for something like this, which he wasn't nominated for, or something like The Wolf of Wall Street. Man, does he give it his all! And in that scene when he crushes that uh, crushes that skull and cuts open his hand, uh, and he actually bleeds in the film, and they just kept going as you know, he rubs blood on everything, including um, uh, Broomhilda. It's uh, a pretty fiery, intense performance, and he's only in maybe 45-ish minutes of that movie. But man, you feel his electricity when he's on the screen. So yeah, he's my number two, Calvin Candy. Um, you know, from the stories of the hand that's bleeding mid-scene to not wanting to cut because it sort of portrayed it well, to just, I think, the general talent that everyone has recognized in Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have anything to add to that that's going to be monumental or new. Sure. It's pretty obvious why he's great in that film. Mm-hmm. And if you like that movie, you like that movie because of him. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know where else you can go with that. Yeah, and I'm kind of excited to see him again in this world with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of looking at actors that will come team up with the director again. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. This first selection for me was tough because I went back and forth and back and forth. Okay. And I sort of already teased it out a little bit with my number two, and it has to do with his women. Okay. It's either The Bride or it's Jackie Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, Since we spent so much time talking about Jackie Brown last week, Mm -hmm. then I think we'll go with The Bride today. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Uma Thurmond, in a different way, but in a similar way, is kind of like Pam Greer. Yeah. We have that that list Mm -hmm. of those actors that we can't quite pinpoint. We've talked about Kristen Ritter. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Betty Davis. Betty Davis. We've mm-hmm. talked about uh, Pam Greer. Mm-hmm. We've, now we're, I'm going to go with Uma Thurman. Yeah. And the way that that story was crafted was essentially at a bar over a couple drinks between her and Tarantino. And he launches this pretty wild story to where she's never given a name like The Bride. Mm-hmm. And I like movies that don't necessarily name the main character, the second Mrs. De Winter, mm-hmm. the bride, right? We can go Rebecca. Yeah. Um, and I just think from that kind of ridiculous yellow jumper, <laughs> yes, that the hell she gets put through in that film. Oh yeah, definitely. And but my, so my favorite favorite scene in any Tarantino film, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, is the scene that she gives to Vivica Fox's daughter. Mm. After she's killed her. Is the beginning that, of part one. Oh, my God. And Jesus mm-hmm. says, like, I know someday you're going to come and get me because mm-hmm. I've been where you are. Yeah. And that scored so well, and the camera work is really intense. 
and I just think she's terrific in that film. Oh, yeah. And I know that's a controversial selection, and obviously from what I've spoken of, I like both Kill Bill 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. I know for a lot of people that's not great Tarantino. I might even be looking at someone, which is you, that doesn't (laughs) love those films. I like one half of those films. So it's tough. So a quarter in total. That's that's rough. Hard not to argue with the performance that she gives in in both parts. It's it's very well done. And uh, to just kind of, you know piggyback on what you said just the utter shit that she has to go through to find her daughter find bill it's man it's the hero's journey essentially yeah yeah that's a good one isn't it strange that he does and there's been a lots of noise about tarantino and what it's like on set Mm -hmm. isn't it interesting that the characters he tends to write really really well Mm -hmm. i guess he writes a lot of characters really well yeah but the badass women that he chooses to champion no oh, yeah really steal the movie and again like Jackie Brown title movie about her yeah so come on but then also Kill Bill and you can also make the same case with Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. she drives that that middle sequence of that film as yeah. much as Vincent Vega and, and John Travolta bits working I'd even say too a little bit in Hateful Late with Daisy Domergy Jen- Jen- yeah. Jennifer J she's a woman in a world of, of men chained up the entire film and I think she holds her own pretty well well, we could even make the case for today. Oh, and we got and then Death Proof as well. Shoshana. It's nothing but women in Death Proof. So I just think it's a really interesting entry point into how he develops cool characters. Yeah. That he he, he writes women really, really well. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there's that line from um, the Jack Nicholson movie, How Do You Write Women? Mm-hmm. I remove all rational thought and whatever the hell that line is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of become sort of an iconic, even though I can't remember it off <laughs> yeah, yeah, of yeah. my head. Yeah. And it's almost tongue-in-cheeky. He seems to be able, he being Tarantino, seems to be able to do that Yeah. in a way that's so seamless on screen. Mm-hmm. And I have a question for you when you give me your number one. Okay. So um, let me hit you with your number one. What do okay. You so my number one's actually, it's going to be from the film we're going to be talking about today, and that's actually Christoph Waltz's Han Landa. I'm going to get into more detail on why I think this is a brilliant performance, but just to kind of sum it up, he's the villain antagonistical element of this film and it's not a noisy antagonistical element a lot of times you have a villain that's very brash intense in your face but a lot of the villains i tend to like on screen are the ones that are really quiet about it your hannibal lecters uh you know characters like that i think there's only really one scene in this film where he truly has like an outburst of sorts everything else is real mellow and it like it unfolds to his advantage and the way he's able to kind of play off the manipulation and his kind of undoing of the scene is I give a lot of credit to Tarantino and his ability to write a character like that, but a lot to Christoph Waltz's performance, who borders on it's almost, you know, a comedic performance, which sounds insane to say because he's playing a Nazi SS officer. You know what I mean? Do you give any thought to Marcellus Wallace as one of the best performance? And the reason that I ask you that right now mm-hmm. is you said you like them rather understated. And although he's pretty intense in that movie, mm-hmm. is never raises his voice one time. Yeah, did that cross your mind at all? A little bit. I do like. I really dig that scene when they're in the bar. Paul's mm-hmm. Monterey in again, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and he's got. We just see the band aid from the back of his head, and he's just telling him, "In the fifth, your ass goes down. In the fifth, my ass." And he's kind of giving him like what he needs from him. Yeah, real, real, not like in your face about it. I mean, I think any actor could be intense and belligerent, but when they're able to be, get the point across and be with a quiet delivery, I think that's something. I gave him some thought, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also gave Butch some thought, too. Mm-hmm. 
But we'd sort of spoken about him last week. So some of this stuff is just today and in correspondence to kind of what we've talked about previously. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could talk about Bruce Willis over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. I thought about Samuel Samuel Jackson from Pulp Fiction as well. I mean, it's like the film that really catapulted the Samuel Jackson we know. Every other movie had to have him say motherfucker in it after that. Like that iconic delivery of, of, of Ezekiel. I, I, I toyed around with that one and you know, even Kurt Russell as stuntman Mike, I think that's another kind of quietly villainous portrayal, sneakily seduct seductive, but like kind of comedic in his own right too, and a bit of a doofus. <laughs> like <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. Because Vanessa Ferlito came up a little bit for me mm. in Death Proof as Butterfly. well. Butterfly. Yeah, it didn't make it, but I gave her some thought as well. But again, yeah. another pretty again woman. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I just really like the way he writes women. Yeah. I don't know. One of the rumors uh, floating around for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually is Kurt Russell's in it. And the rumor is that he's actually playing Stuntman Mike's uh, stunt brother, Stuntman Bob, That's in cool. that film. Which, that'd be kind of a cool little yeah little tie into his universe. I would imagine that's probably the case. I would, I would, I'd be ecstatic if that was the case. Indeed. Well, excellent. Well, let's get, to, let's get to what we're here for. Let's get to our happy hour time. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. All right, let's go back to Nazi-occupied France. Inglorious Bastards starts with a couple things that I'd like to mention just really quick. You know, we talk about Tarantino being such a film aficionado and kind of when he's in control of his craft. I mean, we get that right from the title logos. This is a universal picture, but we get like the vintage universal logo from like the early 70s, like the one that opened up on Jaws, like even toying around with how the titles look, we get that kind of vintage feel where it's something not of modern Hollywood, which is something that I I tend to like about all his movies, but I really pick it up here. And even to, we now get an instance of a film with with chapter titles. So this is chapter one, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France, which was toyed around with being the title of the film, actually. Hmm. And I wonder if he said, well, that Once Upon a Time, I didn't use it then, and then he used it for this new film here but instead became one of the title markers. Do you like title markers in a film like this? I mean, it's not very, it's, we don't see that a lot in film, but there's five of them in this one. You know, we kind of break it up like a five-act play of I, sorts. I like the idea behind it. I like that it breaks it up into five chapters that are sort of stories within the larger whole. Mm-hmm. I just don't know at this point in this movie, in his career, what it's doing to drive the story forward other than an aesthetic that maybe is kind of kitschy and Mm -hmm. unique. And I would actually argue it's not even really unique to him anymore. Yeah. If you go back to Pulp Fiction, Mm -hmm. we get the first use of title cards that I can recall from Tarantino, Mm -hmm. but it's done in a way that sort of helps the audience keep track of a movie that's not entirely sequential. Mm -hmm. This doesn't need it. Yeah. I have a general theory, mm-hmm. and it applies to this film as well. I always have a theory for you every couple of weeks, so here's the next <laughs> yeah. one. And I've sort of mentioned this one before. Mm-hmm. Hollywood loves to tell movies about making movies. And they tend to be very self-grandizing and overindulgent mm-hmm. and rot with excess about the method of making movies. Mm-hmm. I get that they love the process. I get that they love film. You and I love film. Mm-hmm. I don't need Hollywood to tell me the story of movies in a movie. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty off-putting for the entire film for me. Yeah. And so 
I'm not telling you that I don't dislike title cards. Yeah. As we move on down the road and we get to the Hateful Eight, like I think that was completely silly in that film because mm-hmm. most of the movie takes place in the single haberdashery. Well, to me that makes more sense actually because if the title cards are meant to be, you know, scene breaks like a play, that film's very play-like in that it is single location. Okay. <laughs> but then why? So, yeah. so my question is like, I know there's an aesthetic to that. Yeah. And it's like a way that the audience can recognize the Tarantino film. And I'm not even opposed to having signatures yeah. in your movie. Yeah. Like you mentioned last week, you always know when you see a Brian De Palma film, mm-hmm. you can tell. Yeah. So can I. I can yeah. Fincher, Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. There's certain people, Shamilan, you yeah. can tell. Spike Lee, you yeah. can tell. But the way that those guys do it is differently. It's through the camera, whereas his is not necessarily not through the camera. Yeah. I just don't know what that's doing for the reader other than showing you like this worked and I'm going to go back to the well. Again. I'll tell you what it is. It doesn't do anything to progress the story and or break it up, but it's like you're going to a fancy meal and, you know, you get kind of graded on your presentation. You get the little fancy aioli on your, your bed of thing with your bed of garnish. That's what this is. It's toying around with the presentational aspects of of a film which when we go see a Marvel film, you know, it starts, we get the logo, we get a title, and then we get credits at the end, and it's pretty by the books. I like when he kind of jars my presentation of how films look, like with just smash title cards. Maybe we get that one later, Hugo Stiglitz, like really kind of out of out of genre of a war film, and, you know, it kind of keeps you on your toes a little bit. It can be jarring. And I won't argue with you. It doesn't do, does it really propel the story? No, it doesn't. But it's a presentational aspect. What number in his film filmography is this? Is this six? Uh, let me count real quick. One, two, three, four, six. five, six, seven. He is so lost in him own, his own self at this time that he's doing it just for what you said. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm not even actually, bothering to tell you. Like Again, this is where we're at the jumping off point. Okay? Actually, it is six. Kill Bill's considered one. Okay, yeah. so regardless, we're the same general place. Mm-hmm so caught up in what he's doing in film that the story isn't even being progressed by story anymore. It just feels gimmicky, parlory, uh, snake oil, gimmicky. It's just a fucking gimmick. Mm-hmm. And I, but is, that, again, a, is but, that enough to ruin the oh, entire no. film no, no, for you? No, 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 no. no. Okay. I got plenty more that'll ruin it for you. Okay. Or for me. Sorry, not for you. They ruined it for me. All right. But again, I'm not even saying I don't like interesting ways to show a movie like we talk about 500 days of summer a lot we talk about mm-hmm. the graduate time we even talk about psycho not on mic but off mic yeah those were all interesting ways to show the movie through action mm-hmm. and again here it is rule number one for all my aspiring writers out there mm-hmm. in film show don't tell yeah well, if you give a rule to any... It's literally well, showing, but it's telling you as a chunk. It's so weird. Yeah, but if there's a rule to any writer out there, don't take from Tarantino mm. because the way he writes screenplays is... If you're writing on spec, you'll never get it sold because... Kiss of death. You can't have 10 pages of continuous dialogue in your screenplay. You'll yeah. you'll die. So he, he himself is not a good blueprint on how to write a screenplay. No, that's for sure. When you get told to do whatever the hell you want in Hollywood, yeah, do, do it. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay, so that's a lot on title cards. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. I'll let you take it. Excellent. So uh, we're here at the farm of the Lapidite family, and up comes Hans Landa, who's coming to make his sweep of this farm for for any uh, enemies of the state, which would be uh, the Jewish people here on this uh, French uh, cow farm, this dairy farm. 
And the way the scene progresses, and I'm just going to tell you kind of right off the bat here, the first time I saw this, there was two sequences in this film that kind of drove me a little crazy, and it was this one and then one a little later. Maybe just because I kind of thought I was seeing a war film through the eyes of Tarantino, I should have put my thinking cap on when that happened because I should have expected more of this and less of the latter. But... Uh, it's in times going back to this when I kind of see the, the subtly brilliant things that happen in this scene, and it's a slow burn for sure, but what happens here is kind of someone who's, and I want to say this real quick, a lot of times I see Tarantino kind of parodying, you know, genres, whether that be the crime film or kung fu or a grindhouse flick. Here, I don't see him parodying a war film. I see him kind of doing his own take, you know, through his unique di uh, dialect style of a war film and you get it right off the bat here and i timed it this seems long it's 22 minutes yep. yeah when you're just sitting at this table and you're waiting for something to happen but what happens is through these two men talking to each other and as wanda like essentially just skins this man alive with his with his words i think christoph waltz's performance as hans landa as hans landa is pretty remarkable mm -hmm. and i think that at this point, film six to seven, depending how we want to count Kill yeah. Bill, we'll just mm -hmm. say at this point in the filmography, everything seems to be a reheat of the opening sequence in Reservoir Dogs. Now, I will give Hans Landa and Tarantino, oh no, I'm <clears> sorry, <throat> I'll give Tarantino credit on this. There's mm -hmm. a few moments mm -hmm. when Landa is trying to find the missing Jews that obviously this guy's hiding in his floorboards. Yeah. And he does a pretty remarkable job comparing rats and squirrels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's masterfully written. Mm -hmm. The rest of that, and that's two minutes. Yeah. I timed it out. Yeah. The other 20 minutes on yeah. that, Jesse, yeah. is just watching Londa yeah. be very polite mm -hmm. and almost likable as a way to almost uh, disarm mm -hmm. the target, if you will. Yeah. And okay, that's an interesting sort of portrayal. But yeah. dude, come on. Yeah. Get it going already. Okay, okay. Hang on a second. Now, one of the interesting things about this little little opening bit here, too, is kind of the serious nature of the tone that it takes. A lot of times in that Reservoir Dogs opening sequence, they're talking about, you know, uh, like a virgin and big dicks and tipping and yep. this and that. Here, we uh, Tarantino could have that urge to go into almost satirical humor with the kind of the way this plays out with the, the with the rats and and that that type of opening bit but we kind of stay in a, in a serious line here which i think is totally unique for him you know really kind of out of, out of his element you know go back to that opening of jackie brown 2 with lewis and and uh, ordell at the chair with these chicks firing machine guns it's almost ridiculous yeah to me i don't think there's anything ridiculous about that scene as it unfolds i think we see the real horror kind of come through uh on this scene but real quick something i noticed that's you know subtly brilliant and if you don't pay attention you know you miss it completely when the scene starts out londa sits at one head of the table and then uh monsieur lapidite on, on this side here and we're kind of looking at it from you know this perspective with londa on the left and lapidite on the right as the conversation starts to unfold here we the camera for whatever reason this is another thing they tell you not to do in film school either don't move the camera like like in an obvious kind of kind of pattern it has to kind of be a natural and this does like a complete pan from from that angle to that side they call it the the 180 degree rule when this moment happens in this sequence there's a total change on the direction of the conversation Wanda may have been in lapidite's kind of 
lair or his, I'll call it his home court at that point. When that camera makes that complete shift to this side, showing you know them closer now with Londa kind of breathing on his back, this is Londa's game to lose at, at, at this point. We see a total shift tonally with the direction that that this, that this takes. And it's something you would never kind of notice just watching it. And when I saw it, Matt, for the first time, I was like, man, like, when is this scene going to get going? And I think all the more tragic when we kind of get those slow zoom-ins on their faces as he kind of figures it out. And we just we just kind of see Lapadie kind of welling up because he has to give them up or otherwise they're going to sacrifice his family. It's kind of it's kind of sad to me. And I've never seen Tarantino venture other than some moments in Kill Bill into territory as serious as this. There's still an element of levity to it. Mm-hmm. The Sherlock Holmes pipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not done on accident, and it almost presents a break from the tension, but it also shows the dominance. Like that's what I take from that. Okay, it's a Sherlock Holmes-looking pipe. Yep. But it's so much bigger than Lapidite's to show who's really in control. Yeah. Now whether it be camera or not, none of that that doesn't matter to me. Okay. Like that, I'm, that's awesome that you picked that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tend to be a little bit more camera present, where um, camera present aware than I am. Mm-hmm. My issue with that is it's really easy to write. And here's why I'm going to say it's he's really easy to write, with the exception of the squirrel versus the rat bit, which mm-hmm. I think is really strong. He just shows up, and he's very, very courteous mm-hmm. and polite. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to write that. You just say, I need you to walk into this room as a guest and be the most polite person in the entire movie. Now, it presents an ominous feel for Londa that is going to be sort of played out, but I have an issue with this too later. Mm -hmm. And it revolves around another major no-no. And again, we're not saying this is the textbook to follow when you write. Yeah, far from it. You don't do talking head at table after talking head at table after talking head at table after talking head at table. And for an hour and 45 minutes, which gives you five Five fucking appearances of Londa in this film. Mm-hmm. Three of them yeah. are at tables. Yeah. The milk thing yeah. is kind of cutesy and he doesn't want beer or whatever he offers him. Mm-hmm. Champagne, I'm not sure what he offers him. Yeah. Wine. Wine, thank you. Sorry, mm-hmm. yeah, wine. He wants the farm, uh, the farmer's fresh milk. Mm-hmm. He's very complimentary of the daughters. And it creates, man, this guy as a Nazi mm-hmm. cannot be what's being presented here, but it doesn't play out. And yeah. here's why it doesn't play out. Yeah. Here's my big... The, of all that I just said, okay. here's my biggest issue. Can I say what mm-hmm. happens at the end of the mm-hmm. scene? La Petite gives away the Jews that he's hiding in the floorboards of his house, mm-hmm. which Londa knows the minute <clears throat> that someone walks across the floor. And if you go back and watch the scene, you can even see his eyes divert to the ground when the, he hears the hollow nature of mm-hmm. the floor. Cat's out of the bag. Yeah. It's that moment in Strangers, right? When they're already in the house and mm-hmm. then we wait for them to get back in the house. Yeah. Right? Okay. Is that... that mm-hmm. Right? He didn't kill La Petite. Yeah. And that is so inconsistent with everything that Londa is in this film. So terribly inconsistent. I don't want to get to the end, but I think as much as I disliked Ordell Roby's death in Jackie Brown, I think Londa's ending is even worse in this film. So, again, as we told the people that are going to hear this podcast, we have yeah. very different takes on this film. Yeah. 
I find one recognizable, likable point in this, and that's okay. the squirrel versus the rat, whereas you're at a much different place. I think this is one of the greatest opening sequences in all of film. I'll just, oh, you've got to be kidding I'll just, me. I'll just say that right now. No, of all of film. In all, not, one of. It's not the best, but one of. What is one? Like, we talking top 25 here? Yeah, sure. Come on. Yeah. Man, really? It's something you certainly don't forget. As much as you hate it, you haven't forgotten it. Like well, because I just watched it last night. Yeah, exactly. But Ugh. no, I think there's a lot to like here with you know the introduction of our character. But let's get on with it here. Uh, one, we do have one survivor of this. This would be Shoshana. As she escapes, we think she's going to be dealt the death blow. But Londa spares her life, and then we're off to chapter two: Inglorious Bastards. So here we're introduced to the protagonistical element of the film. There's there's a few of them, led mm-hmm. by Lieutenant Aldo Rain, played by Brad Pitt, uh, Donnie Donowitz, by Eli Roth, and, uh, and a few others that, that we'll get into. But, you know, we're kind of getting their introduction kind of right off with, you know, a Patton-ish-like military speech. You know, uh, Rain wants his Nazi scalps. They're taking on a debit that they owe him that he wants to see it through. But, you know, we kind of get, you know, something that's, you know, something to... One thing about Tarantino's films, and we talked about it, is this gratuitous use of violence, almost bordering on cartoonish. You know, Kill Bill has one of the bloodiest sequences. They had to go to monochrome to, to show it, the fight with the crazy 88s. Yeah. Here in the violence, I don't know I don't know about you, Matt, but like just because there are like Nazis, and this might be the most despicable, and we saw this in Rare's Lost Ark, it's just kind of great to kind of see them bite the dust. And... We get some pretty good sequences of that here, um, coming up with them, you know, with the with the with the bear Jew and and, and you know clubbing clubbing the Nazis to death. Okay, um, heavy heavy exposition. Brad Pitt going about his monologue to explain what the glorious bastards are, what their plan is, what it means to join him. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. My Jew bear, mm-hmm. or sorry, the bear Jew. Mm-hmm. Is my second biggest issue in this film. Okay. What a fucking waste of a character. Like, he shows up and bashes that Nazi's head in with that bat, mm-hmm. and we don't see him do a goddamn thing that matters until the last three minutes of the movie, the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. Yeah. Uh, is it um, Lip? What's the. Stiglitz? Yeah, Stiglitz is really well developed Mm -hmm. because as an escaped prisoner gets back to inform the Nazis about the Inglorious Bastards, he goes into a whole detail Mm -hmm. about that particular character. Mm -hmm. We get some backstory on him. Yeah. And they fucking kill him about the time he gets going in that movie. Yeah. Now compare that Mm -hmm. to the Bear Jew. Yeah. And what that starts off as, as this, plus of all, he should have been much more hulking. It should have been... He's, I don't want to say he's meek, but he wasn't the presence that he needed to be. And yeah, a disarmed Nazi. And by the way, that is so fucking over the top. I can't like that's I wish you would ask me this week. What's your least favorite character in any Tarantino film? And it would be Brad Pitt. In <laughs> really? This movie. Oh, man. I hate this movie. Yeah. OK. And it's be, I don't there's not a fucking like if I didn't have to watch this movie, I would have fucking turned it off again. Mm-hmm. I was just beside myself. Mm hmm. There's no development on this character that matters that gets a really cool name other than bashing one guy's head in. And then we don't see anything, but then it's not just him. Mm -hmm. It's mostly not the Inglorious Bastards. Then it turns into the return of Shoshana and what cinema is Mm -hmm. in a very historically accurate part of Nazi Germany that, Mm -hmm. frankly, i got to be honest with you, Mm -hmm. I don't want a story about that either. There's no point in this movie where he hooks me and keeps me. So... Um, 
I, I don't even know. Yes, we get the introduction to the Inglorious Bastards, and as he's walking up and down the line, talking to the soldiers, the bastards that would be, mm-hmm. it's just heavy-handed. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm going to do. Um, and you know that I can be a fan of Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. I'm not even anti-Brad Pitt guy. Mm-hmm. That scene... Oh, God. So what is it? Is he too cartoonish for you? or? In short, it's that if you're going to tackle a presence on screen that is as large as the Nazis and Hitler, mm-hmm. you cannot turn it into Quentin Tarantino remakes Mel Brooks The Producers. <laughs> That's how I feel like when I watch this film. It's comical and trite and it just oh god yeah it of all the things that we do in this podcast mm-hmm. one of the more interesting things for me is going back and rewatching stuff that I'd watched at an earlier stage in my life <laughs> yes Jackie Brown was really different that's why I said I was so perplexed by that film last yeah. week loved it at first and then not as much as some issues with it yeah we walked out of Inglorious Bastards mm-hmm. and I hated it mm-hmm. the second viewing was worse um I just think it's so full of Tarantino-esque moments yeah. that he forgets to even decide whose story it is. Mm-hmm. Hans Land is in this movie for a mat for a masterful 17 minutes, and, and Christoph Waltz is great as him. I agree with you on yeah. that. The Inglorious Bastards, which is the title of the film, mm-hmm. are probably the third to fourth most important character in the movie. Um the characters that they do develop in that film get killed about the time we get into it, and I'm not, and we'll get into that too because this is this is not even my least favorite part of the whole movie. That's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, that's a really long answer. What don't I like about it? Yeah, there's no story. Yeah. Oh, okay, I, I, I had it last night. Let me give this one thing, and then I'll give it back to you. Okay. I'll let you have the mic back. Did you see Hostiles with Christian Bale? Mm-hmm. That movie was so bad. Because it was three completely unrelated stories smashed together into one semi-bad Western film. Mm -hmm. Terrible movie. Awful film. I feel like this resembles that in that this could have been three separate stories that got smashed into one movie to try to create one linear story. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work for me at all. To me, what it is is it's it's three plot lines that kind of converge at the end. They do. In a mishmash of fucked up ways. No, you're right. I, I don't disagree. Yeah. Yeah, and couldn't you all call all the characters in this film inglorious bastards? Because everyone kind of is a bastard in this film. Oh, okay. I mean, I know they have the title of it, I, yeah, but between I, Londa and them, and even you know, Dieter later in the bar, and uh, Volker, Frederick Zoller, Zoller. I mean, yeah, yeah, like all of them. They're all kind of like got their own intentions and what they want to accomplish and like what their needs are and man they just let it all screw up like everything and you know as good of intentions as they are is to blow up this cinema late late later up in the in, in the thing it always goes kaput i mean that's classic tarantino we saw last week in the heist and jackie brown like mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. much as they planned it out and as much as that you get all these converging people involved that want all a piece of the action and it all just kind of gets screwed up like in some way shape or another not to get too far ahead of ourselves with the story, but since you brought it up, I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Don't you find that a bit convenient that all three of them have the same plan, which is to attack Hitler when they find out Hitler's coming to the movie theater at the movie theater? Yeah, it's, con- it's fucking bullshit. Yeah, it's convenient, but that it, it doesn't. Dis- it kind of like in that heist scene, like the, with uh, Jackie holding. It doesn't derail the, that 
the suspense of that of how how was this going to get resolved and i think when i see tarantino films i always want to know the how how is this gonna unfold how is reservoir dogs gonna unfold once these guys find out there's a rat amongst them how is she gonna find bill how are they gonna heist this how are they gonna deal with kurt russell's death proof how are they gonna rescue Broomhilda from calvin candy it's 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 a long arduous kind of tedious process to get to the how but i know who's making the film and you know if this was michael bay i would probably walk out but because yeah. it's him and because you know it's hard to write like this like we have to give Tarantino benefit of the doubt that he was given a gift of writing. Okay, so you said what I had a really long discussion with with my wife. Mm-hmm. And that's he gets a pass mm-hmm. because of who he is. Because yeah. this has Brad Pitt and it's a Tarantino film. He gets a pass because of who he is. Because if this was Michael Bay, first of all, it wouldn't be Michael Bay. There'd be ridiculous action sequences and busy cameras. But like, I know what you're getting at. Yeah. But because it's him, he gets... A get out of jail free card, and what kills me, and again, there's, there's, there's always. But I don't give him that card on every film. I don't think you do. I, mm. I, I actually, I know you don't. Yeah. I, I know for a fact that you don't. I'm talking about generally speaking. You look at the reviews, whether it's Rotten Tomatoes or the Cinescore or whatever. Yeah. It's 80 plus, mm-hmm. and there is no way. Like, we're t- if it's 80 plus percent, we're talking yeah. upper echelon. This movie was Academy nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his worst film in his filmography by a mile. And you know I hate The Hateful Eight. Yeah, I know. That's... I just... I, again, and it's, sometimes it's just you don't get the movie or the movie doesn't work for you. Yeah. But Kill Bill, like all the films have scenes like this that just kind of drone on. Like, my God, and Kill Bill, when she goes to Hantori Hansu to get the sword, like, fuck, it's like 20 minutes long. Just to get, just to get the sword. I'm not disagreeing with yeah, that. Yeah, I'm just saying that this comes with the territory. This overindulgence and this love of cinema, the presentational aspect, the overuse of dialogue. I'm telling you, Matt, like no other writers are allowed to write these like 10 minute long dialogues at tables. Like no one else gets to do that. Right. He's like the only one. And I, you can see why they don't get to do that. Because yeah. I'm going to argue for me, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Yeah. You better be talking about something really, really interesting. But I, I, I Otherwise, yeah, it's just a bunch of talking heads around some coffee. Yeah, but I mentioned last week too, like 85 to 90% of television shows do this per episode, like for the same amount of time. No like, argument for me there. Yeah. No and like, either, except Cobra Kai. <laughs> except Cobra Kai. But, you know, there it, like, to me, it totally kills a, a show's momentum because, you know, we'll get a little kind of little action bit. Maybe I'm talking about, like, like Luke Cage or Daredevil or one of those Netflix shows. And then we just stop and talk and mm-hmm. sit across this lawyer's desk for, like, yeah. 10 minutes because we're trying to pad time on, on a thing. It, it, to me, it works different in the film because I know we have a finite amount of time that we're working with. And I'm okay with sitting at the table listening to these characters talk. And try and like out manipulate each other. It's it's very it's very different than a sequence like in Silence of the Lambs. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Like if it's if the action and by say action I don't mean fist fights, mm-hmm. fisticuffs. Yeah. Was our word for this week. Check mm-hmm. the box here to fisticuffs. Hashtag fisticuffs. Okay. To drive the action through dialogue to help develop the characters or give you insight to the characters, I'm all about it. Mm-hmm. But this and the Londa bit, and when we get to the bar scene later with. Oh, God. It doesn't drive it. It's just sticking around and celebrating what is Tarantino making Tarantino. Yeah. And 
But that's what you bought a ticket for. That's not what I bought a ticket for. Yeah. That's not what I bought a ticket for. That's what people buy ticket for when they come see us film. Okay. But I got a word of warning for all you would-be warriors. When you join my command, you take on debit. A debit you owe me, personally. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps. And I want my scalps. And all y'all will get me 100 Nazi scalps, taken from the heads of 100 dead Nazis. Or you will die trying. So now we get to chapter 3 of the film, German Night in Paris. This is where we're uh, reunited with Shoshana four years. Oh, we've also jumped four years from where we previously were. It's a lot Um, of tabletop discussions he's missed out on. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, four years of that. But she's kind of opened up this little cinema there in France, kind of trying to ride out the Nazi occupation of this city, kind of unavoidable, because um, she's uh, runs into Frederick Zoller, who's a bit of a national hero. He's kind of held off an army of, of allies from this bell tower, uh, 60-some the first day, I think he says, and you know they made a movie of him. You know, this is kind of all nation's pride. Nation's pride, which was in the film, was a uh, film within a film. It was actually directed by Eli Roth. They filmed segments to kind of in- include on there. You, you can actually watch it on the on the Blu-ray if you want to. But uh, he's really taken with Shoshana, who wants like nothing to do with him. He's kind of like that leech that just like won't leave her alone until forcibly, almost by bringing Goebbels into this whole thing. Uh, they want to have the premiere at her at her theater, and this is kind of like his ploy to like get closer to her and show that, hey, I'm giving your your movie theater uh, a big night to show it off, to show that I, I like you. I'm doing this for you, a gesture to you. Quite a romantic gesture. You know you're going to the German second-in-command to do this thing. My God. Mm-hmm. But um, the guy they picked to play Joseph uh, Goebbels was uh, – he looks just like him. Like, oh, no. Sylvester Groth, I think. Is yeah. Nice. Yeah. Crazy. And he was interesting in the German film uh, kind of industry is like all their films that they made were all some types of propaganda yeah. or like things to get the German people behind them saying, no, what we're doing is like legit. There was one production they made. He made his own version of Titanic. This is like a lost film. It's impossible to find. But he like tried to replicate the size of the ship like – like oh my verbatim, wow. which was insane. And it ended up being kind of a disaster, but it was to kind of show the German people, no, we have an aesthetic for art and this is what we're doing and this is what it's all behind. So he's he's interesting at this time. And I like how he's kind of tied into this by wanting to show off nation's pride here. Tarantino's dead on accurate in this part of the film. Mm-hmm. Of course he is, mm-hmm. for what I just said earlier. Yeah. That could be a compliment, but in this particular way, it's just more of the same mm-hmm. self-aggrandizing nonsense. Mm-hmm. The, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the guy that plays Frederick Zoller, the assassin in the bell tower, mm-hmm. Daniel Brühl, yeah, that Baron Zemo, yep, from yeah. So that was sort of interesting to me. Like that's a pretty big part in that film, yeah. And usually Tarantino puts you in a movie, and it's kind of to the to the stratosphere. Yeah, talk about a career that stalled out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he's interesting with who he cast. He he did cast a lot of unknown actors like him, Shoshana. We had never seen Christoph Waltz before, right. and even a little bit Michael Fassbender. Like that was just kind of his like kind of like big thing too. Yeah. But Daniel Brühl, don't you? Again, I don't. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Yeah. Screen time probably top five, six in the film. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And. It's just a point being, I just think it's interesting that that didn't really translate. Because I actually think his performance is pretty solid in this mm-hmm. film. He's sort of love struck. 
smitten with Shoshana. Yeah. And seems to be kind of likable enough, in a sense. Mm-hmm. This is another issue that I have with this. Yeah. Kind of over polite like Londa. Mm-hmm. But then when you get underneath that first layer, you realize what a terrible human being this is. Yeah. And we get that later when he tells her, begin bragging at the bar when all these people are shaking his hand about what a great war hero is because he killed all these people, yada, yada. And she realizes, like, oh, man, you're awful. Yeah. Um, and she's never really interested in him. Yeah. Because she already has a boyfriend who works in the theater with her who happens to be a black guy. Mm-hmm. And to that... Talk about being played out to absolutely zero significance. Yeah, that doesn't really go anywhere. I'll give you that. Um, especially with the, if you consider the Adolf Hitler versus African Americans, Jesse Owens sort of thing, yeah. that, that could be sort of woven into. Mm-hmm. There's one throwaway line mm-hmm. about um, African Americans and, and athletes through slavery, and then they don't address that other than he can't be in the theater that night because he's black when the Führer mm-hmm. comes to see the movie. Yeah. A couple things he's also accurate on. Mm-hmm. The Lenny Riefsteifel, big-time actress in that era. Mm-hmm. I know I just murdered that name. Yeah. Um, and... That birth of a nation, or I'm sorry, pride of a nation, mm-hmm. is an actual propaganda film. That's mm-hmm. the title of a real propaganda film. Yeah. So, um, you know, he's playing fast and loose, he being Tarantino, with some elements of film, but where it matters in the history of his art, oh boy, then mm-hmm. he's going to be spot on. Yeah, I think you're talking about that big uh, uh, propaganda film, Triumph of the Will. There you go. Yeah. That was one of the ones they made us watch in film class, mm-hmm. and it was very uncomfortable to watch. Let me just say that. Awful. <laughs> But I got to give Tarantino another big, big heaping of credit to something that's unique in this film that, you know, Hollywood just take kind of the cheap way out. Like my wife and I just watched Chernobyl five episode miniseries. We loved it. But like all the characters talking in English and it's obviously not an English set film like he went full foreign on this one with English and. You know, I, I, we kind of looked at like the statistics. It's like 70% in a foreign language, whether it be German, French, Italian, etc. <laughs> yeah, Italian, but that's funny. Yeah, but man, what producer, like what, what, who else would like kind of like say or like, oh no, you, that, that English patient, like these war films, like uh, Schindler, like it, it like English, you, you got these English, English speaking, um, you know, war films, uh, not all of them, but some. You know, he went full for a Hollywood film coming out. This was an August release, Matt. Summer mm. movie season, like yeah, people probably don't work that hard. That could that could be uh, that could have been a disaster. Okay, like I think it lends a little more authenticity to the time it was made in. Okay, but yeah, let's get right on to it. They agreed to house this at at um, her cinema. Well, hold on, we skipped a big part. So well, after he pursues her, mm-hmm. he goes back and basically to try to curry favor with her. Talks the SS Nazi brass mm. into screening this film yep. at her little Chantate theater that seats about half the people that it normally would. Mm-hmm. And this is all done to try to woo her, right? Mm. Okay, go. Yeah. So in comes Londa. He's going to handle security detail for the night. Um, and then it's kind of another... It's another table scene, Matt, but it's another no. undressing of the character type type of moment You know, through the dialogue. What does he offer her at the table? Strudel. But he also first offers her, offers her a glass of milk. Oh, like, yeah. he knows at that point. He knows who this is. Like, this yeah, is... I have a hard time buying that, too. Like, I think you're right. Yeah. How? Yeah. But 
Because he saw her like eyeball through the floorboard and then her running away with mud over her face. Yeah, no, we'll, he we'll, we'll give him that. But I, he's able to kind of de- decipher, you know, through through this conversation, you know, what's going to play out. And, you know, he just he knows in this scene and you're just kind of waiting for him to kind of like do something. Arrest her, and he doesn't. He, he he holds back a little bit. Um, OK, I, I don't think he knows that that is the girl that got away mm-hmm. in the first 30 minutes of that film. I don't think he does. I think what he's become at this point is more ominous mm-hmm. and much more um, investigative. Mm-hmm. And I think the milk, which also plays out to the cream that he makes her put on the strudel before she eats it, mm-hmm. is just more of a common routine that he's using to sort of pursue anyone that might be in opposition to the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. So whether he's recognizes her or whether he doesn't, I'm not really sure that it progresses the story forward, only insofar as it's a it's an interesting discussion that they have at the table, but there's no like a virgin there's no chicks with guns. There's not even the rat versus the squirrel. Yeah, is... no, yeah, this one isn't iconic as those ones. But okay, so let me ask you though. Yeah. So this is my this is because there's a third version of this in a minute coming up too. Yeah. And at this point, again, mm-hmm. timed it out. Yeah. Twenty six minutes that scene is from fade in to fade out on that scene, and she meets. Yeah. Goebbels, um mistress and all that. that. Yeah. So yeah, in and out is that that yeah. length of time. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? Yeah, like it's not. Per- it's just him celebrating him same his same self. Yeah, it's just so. Oh God, that scene's. I know you love the first scene. Yeah, great opening. Yeah, I don't like this one as much. Well, no, because that one's like in the vaults of the all time for you. Yeah, but what are we fucking doing? I'll tell you this: Chapter three of this film is is my least favorite part of the is the, my least favorite part of the movie. But it kind of gets us to where we're going, where she's going to plan to burn down this thing with the nitrate film collection that she has uh, when the German brass and all these people come see see the premiere. So through revenge, through fate for Shoshana, she has a second chance to get back at this person that wiped out her family. And she's going to take it on this night as they're celebrating German propaganda. So let's get on to it. Chapter four, Operation Kino. Kino in German uh, means theater. Movie theater. So this is Operation Movie Theater. So through the use of a German actress spy, Bridget von Hammerschmark, played by Diane Kruger, she's kind of there through in to let them know about, you know, this plan to host this gala where they're going to go blow up the basket, as Mike Myers so eloquently says. And the guy kind of in charge of this is Lieutenant Archie Hickox, played by Michael Fassbender. And they're going to take some of the German-born members of the Bastards to infiltrate this and, and kind of, you know... Put their eggs in the basket and blow up the basket. Do you but, ever scratch your head in the scene? Like, when exactly did Michael Fassbender and Winston Churchill, strangely played by Rod Taylor? Mm-hmm. What a weird, weird cast. Yeah. That's no lines just sitting there. Mm-hmm. Rod Taylor, like yeah. the birds and Time Machine, and Rod <laughs> Taylor sitting there. Yeah. So weird. Mm-hmm. When did they meet the bastards? Like, there's a huge gap mm-hmm. in when... Because we needed another 20 minutes for a table scene. We couldn't have had an introduction between well, the two If they would have had that, the film would have been longer for oh you. Oh, my God. But we get to it. He's going to team up with them. and But by way of Tarantino, of course that's not going to go according to plan. And, you know, it's just kind of getting to know the characters a little bit more in a crazy circumstance. Here you have a British and these uh, allied German soldiers 
you know, undercover with this German spy actress here in this bar, this French bar with all these Nazi soldiers. Right, so they're playing a game of charades. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like 20 questions. So you have this card on your head, mm-hmm. and blind man poker, or three, whatever that is. Yeah. doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that the Germans are being infiltrated by the British and poorly. Mm-hmm. And Tarantino loves the first two appearances of Londa so much mm-hmm. that he does it a third time in this scene, but not with Londa. Mm-hmm. And that SS soldier, and I can't remember. It's Dieter. Dieter. Dieter something. Does his best impersonation of Londa. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't have Londa do it because mm-hmm. I guess Christoph Waltz was maybe busy that day. Well, that, so he puts it for the third, no, the third time. Yeah. This is so overwrought with everyone. I am Quentin Tarantino, yeah. and look how I will write another table. That This is the worst scene in the film for me. This is my favorite scene in the movie, actually. God, it's the same fucking thing. I know, but like if it was written poorly, like you would hate it even more. Like there's It a, is written poorly. I don't think it is. The, okay, so um, Stiglitz, yeah. the most developed mm-hmm. character in The Glorious Bastards at this point, dies along with everybody else except for mm-hmm. Van Hammersmark, the least developed character that actually has so little to do with the film yeah. that she, other than in the next scene where Brad Pitt sticks his finger in her bullet hole in her leg yeah. to prove she's not a spy, has zero bearing on this movie well, she why does. does she get to live she's giving them the plan of what they need to do now that everyone's been wiped out she's the only known ver- version of how this plan's going to work out I wish I could get there with that because I actually thought about that for a minute too and I said oh so you know what this movie is this movie is about mm-hmm. the inability of military intelligence to carry through with any fruition a plan that they've set up and instead yeah. done in civilians hands it's carried out better that's yeah. not what this movie's about that's way too smart for this film <laughs> that's not what this movie is because I was like, oh, oh, you know what? As the double agent for British intelligence, that's what this is. And mm-hmm. I played around with that for a good 20 minutes. I watched mm-hmm. this scene twice. Yeah. Ah. And so then basically what happens is cover's blown. But real quick, oh, yeah, like in, in this scene, we talk about story a lot. And that seems to be your main kind of component on why you're disliking a lot of this. And again, I think Tarantino locked into something in this film where he really felt in control of like just all aspects, whether it was sound, acting, I'll argue story, but also just kind of the camera placement. So I, I think that, that that moment, and you you have almost have to go back the second time to really kind of get it in the moment, is when uh, Hickox puts up the, the three, the British or American three with the three fingers like this, <laughs> he... Uh, it's shown from behind, and, and we kind of just see Dieter kind of look at him, and he kind of sees it. But go back and watch and notice kind of just the sound, this loud, raucous bar with this raucous group of these drunken soldiers. The sound just kind of cuts out like at, at this moment as he kind of looks out for a second and then just kind of glances off to the side. And it's a moment that you... First time watching it, I don't, I don't know like what's happened here. I don't know how the cover's been blown. I'm not, I don't know the German three or whatever, but like the way it kind of unfolds now into sort of this Mexicanish standoff and this kind of crazy ultimatum, where the only way out of it is to just kill every, everything and no one's walking out of this thing alive. Again, the path to get here, we're gonna blow up this theater later, and this is how we're gonna do it. But, oh, no, we're going to screw up the planning of the people that would have been good in the act, the German-speaking members that wouldn't have spoiled it in the end. Everything gets blown to shit. This is the same moment in Pulp Fiction when they shoot. They can't just drive down the road in a car 
to take Marvin to Marcellus Wallace. No, they had to blow his head off too, and that becomes a whole thing. Like, it's taking the scenario and just kind of like shitting the pot with it. Okay, I think with the Pulp Fiction comparison, that drives the Harvey Keitel character and the wolf, and and granted, it's through violence. This doesn't drive anything. This scene, if you remove it from the film, mm-hmm. the movie wouldn't miss a beat. It wouldn't. You could take it out of the film entirely, and the movie could go on without those 20 minutes seamlessly. Now you'd have to get rid of the next scene where Brad Pitt <coughs> meets Van Hammersmark. But truthfully, him meeting her doesn't have anything to do with the movie anyway. Yes, it does. They're, they're getting the plans to go blow up this theater. Jesse, they have Shoshana to... already has that set up. I know, but th- they don't know that yet. But that's the point of the movie. I... She starts, she's the one that gets away, and then these guys show up but she's and not... steal her movie. That's she... the problem. But it's just two, it's two converging plots to kill Hitler, and which one's going to get him first? Which is that's absurd. The, that's the plot of the movie. Kill Hitler. Yeah. <sighs> okay, I'll do Valkyrie. Give me yeah. Valkyrie instead. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, kill Hitler. Whoever's going to get to the path first wins. They kind of both get there at, okay. at the same time, in a way. Yes, that, no, that is that is like the the larger idea of what the film is. But then the Hans Landa character comes yeah. in and steals that. It should be who kills Hans Landa, and he actually doesn't get killed. And Hans, not to give it away at the end, but I'm going to right now. Matter of fact, he gives himself up and goes yellow to try to sell himself out to save his own skin. Which, what he's a coward. Yeah. And you know what his comeuppance is? Give me a break. <laughs> But Kill Hans Landa isn't as intense or as the stakes risen as much as Kill Hitler. There's then make Hitler the driving force in this film. Okay, so I'm gonna, let me give you two numbers here. All right. We're a minute. Sorry, we're an hour and 50 minutes into this film. This shootout has occurred in this bar. Mm-hmm. And we get our fourth appearance in the movie from Hans Landa, mm-hmm. which is exactly one more time than we've seen Hitler in this film. Okay? The totality of... The sequence is Hans Landa finds Van Hammersmark's shoe and begins to put the pieces together with an autographed piece of uh, napkin mm-hmm. that was to the German soldier that kind of started to blow this whole thing up from Van Hammersmark to his newborn son, mm-hmm. Maximilian. Yep. So he puts the shoe and the signature together, and now this kills me. Mm-hmm. We've undone the investigative ability of Hans Landa that we developed in the first scene and in the Strusel scene because if you find a woman's shoe mm-hmm. and a piece of paper with her signature and a kiss on it to some kid, man, riddle me this, Batman, but maybe she might be involved. And then you've undone in his fourth, his fourth scene in this movie. Everything that he's not spent almost two hours trying to build Hans Landa up in my mind to be, yeah. you've just crushed it on the floor. I don't think you've done that because the entire time it's him finding out things and unfolding through what's left behind for him or what's not told to him and him finding a way to figure it out. Because he does the same thing at the premiere. So let's get to the premiere. We're in chapter five, Revenge of the uh, of the Giant Face. And this is the big gala premiere. Shoshana's made uh, this kind of... Her own propaganda film of sorts telling her what she's going to burn this this thing to the ground. And, and we got the new replacements for Operation Kino. Aldo Rain, uh, Donnie Donowitz, and Omar. The, he speaks the second most Italian. I don't speak Italian. <laughs> you don't have to say anything. Yes. It's kind of funny, too, because he actually gets gets off better than the two of them when he, go, when he goes through the Italian the test. Yeah. But, um, yeah, here we get it. It's grand. It's pompous. It's circumstance. It's whatever. But, you know, Londa figures it out. If the shoe fits and this and that. Because she has a cast on her foot. Mm-hmm. 
but I think he's he's smart enough a character to know that he does he does turn yellow. But I think he sees the opportunity that this opportunity presents itself to him. That if he ends the conflict and what the shit and shenanigans are going on tonight, that he can make something for himself. Yeah, I think selfish mm-hmm. is an interesting character arc to take for Hans Landa. There's just at no point in this film has that even been remotely developed, and there's no point. And nothing to make me believe that here, with this ragtag group of losers that were on, like, that the Mystery Incorporated kids could have figured who the fuck up was going on, like, that the Third Reich is in trouble of, you know, is, is in jeopardy of not taking over the world. Like, what? Why is he even worried at this point? Because he's been the very good German soldier doing a lot of hard work. For the Third Reich up to this point, and now all of a sudden, yeah, you know what? This Aldorine and these inglorious bastards, they might win. I think I'm gonna turn yellow. I <laughs> there's nothing in this film to support that character decision, and I'm not saying that he couldn't make the decision. Mm-hmm. He can do whatever he wants in Quentin Tarantino's head, set it up, pay it off. Zero setup. None. Just out of the blue. He actually has. Two of the Inglorious Bastards, Rain and the uh, Aldo Reigns and the U- other cat. Yudovich. <clears throat> at, at at the end of a gun. Mm-hmm. And it's over. And you don't think that would curry favor with, with Hitler? Yeah. And he decides then in that moment, I'll make you a deal. Which is also kind of something we've seen with him before. Like, I'll make you a deal, especially in the first scene. I'll mm-hmm. make you a deal. If you tell me where these people are, yeah. I'll let you and your family live. Yeah. Okay, so that's a little consistent. <laughs> but why now? As he decided that ending this conflict between the Allies and Ruts and, and Nazi Incorporated mm-hmm. is the 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 course to take to save his own skin. That's just bullshit. Yeah, well, he he sees the path out through this circumstance of how the Operation Kino is unfolding. I just He's, don't see him wanting to find a way out. Yeah. I mean, okay, yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. He's, yeah. This is my chance. He out. sees Hitler and Goebbels and Gerning and Herman and all these mm-hmm. guys here. He's got the top four, and you need all four of them to, to win the war tonight. To, the war ends, right? Yeah, the war ends. Like, he sees this here, and he's like, well, if this does happen, like, what's my path out, out of this if, if, I, if, I, if I don't stop this? Like, they're going to arrest me. They're going to try me for war crimes, and I'm going to spend the rest—they're either going to execute me or I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And sees this as his one opportunity, again, kind of breaking down the scene, you know, setting, you know, you know, the elements displayed before him, the, the pieces of dynamite and everything that, you know, if he doesn't rescue them, then, yeah, I, I might be able to find a way out of this. It, it's selfish. It's it's manipulative. Like that's what he's been the entire the entire film. Like he's always kind of playing the cards to his own right. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Seeing as I may be rapping on the door momentarily. I must say. Damn good stuff, sir. So we're reaching our climax of the film. Shoshana's coming up on reel number four. She's going to show uh, what she's made for the German people. Uh, her boyfriend's going to ignite the nitrate film. We got Donowitz and Omar in the, in the stands. But they're ready to kind of shoot up this place, too. So, again, the converging plots, like... 
the bastards couldn't have known that Shoshana was going to have this plan. Shoshana didn't know that these people were going to come in here. I think that that's almost it's almost comedic that the way that plays out was you have two plots to kill Hitler and what happens. But good God, like I don't think you you can disagree with this one. Just to see him just blown away and like it's just it's it's rewriting history, but satisfying in in a way. So as comedic as that is for you, let me give you what I find comedic in this bit. Mm-hmm. And that's Shoshana in that very oddly shot montage, putting on the war paint of makeup prior to the filming, prior to the screening of that film. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've talked a lot about Tarantino's music mm-hmm. so far. I'm going to argue yeah. that this is the worst use of any music in a Tarantino film, and it's Cat People by David Bowie. <laughs> kind of comes out of nowhere. Oh, it's awful. And that scene, again... Mm-hmm has nothing to do with the film other than the Rambo first blood montage. I'm heading into battle bit. Yeah. It's a gear up scene. Oh my God. Again, more like, oh yeah, you know what? I need to find a song from pop culture. That's kind of obscure, but not that obscure, but maybe a little forgotten and find a way to weave it into this. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Let's David Bowie. (laughs) I I, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. But I bet you a dollar, Jesse. That Quentin Tarantino is not a David Bowie fan. I'm just going to venture that. I mean, I may be dead wrong, mm-hmm. but and I don't know anyone in the world that has ever said, "Oh yeah, Cat People" by David Bowie. Go with that. There's no <laughs> way putting out a fire, Cat People. That's funny, brutal. Okay, so um, yeah, go. Uh, yes, it is sort of comedic, and that all these converging plots have reached their penultimate moment at this theater to destroy Hitler. Which, by the way, just sort of in passing, decided. I think I'm going to go and watch the screening of this film tonight. Which, yeah. again, no reason, zero reason why that should happen. Um, but okay, yeah. So here we are. Yeah, just blow, blow him away, blow all the people away. The thing burns. The dynamite ignites. Well, we have. Wait, let's go over thing. We have an ignitable. Yeah. Film. Yeah. We have dynamite mm-hmm. on our legs. Yeah, of the bastards. Yeah. And then we have a heavy assortment of guns. Yeah. So we have a well-equipped army ready to take down Hitler. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be Carrie. Yeah, <laughs> the movie turns into Carrie. Yeah, essentially. Go ahead. I'll let you. I'll let you finish it up. But it burns down. <laughs> you know, the the dynamite helps them. You know, get the job done faster. And you know, World War II's ended in this scenario in this instance. So we wrap it up with. We wish. We wish. Yeah, actually. we wish. Yeah. Again, it's this type of playing around with with history and and how things played out, which you know that's kind of the same thing is going to happen in the next film somehow. Once upon a time in Hollywood, so however that's going to work out. But uh, we have one more scene to wrap up. It's Londa's uh, surrender to the Allied forces. Can I, can there, I say one thing about the fire? Yeah, go ahead. Um, hell, they're putting out the fire with gasoline. Dynamite and gunfire. No, I get it. So, <laughs> Just it's so on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when her image is on the screen, mm-hmm. basically giving the Nazis their eulogy as they burn. Yeah. I do find that to be strangely effective because it almost is reminiscent mm-hmm. of a horror flick. Because yeah. her image is pretty spectral. Yeah. As the celluloid is burning on the screen that is burning. It takes a ghastly apparition kind oh, yeah. of effect. Um, I mean this with all respect. Mm-hmm. Not to you, but just to yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of my favorite things in the Harry Potter series mm-hmm. is when they destroy the Horcruxes 
and you see the various versions of Voldemort's spirit soul sort of leave the Horcrux. Yeah. It's very, it kind of creeps me out. Mm-hmm. It's really reminiscent to me of that. Her image is sort of in the smoke and the fire with a little bit of a screen behind it kind of floating there is really, really oddly horrifying to mm-hmm. me. Like I had to watch that a couple times thinking, did that really yeah. kind of... And it, I like it, that it you is. said that. It's oddly Carrie-esque. It's, yeah, just burnt. It's even really red like yeah. Carrie is. Bitches burn, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good. But we have one one little final coda to, to wrap this thing off. Well, everyone's dead now. Everyone's dead. And you know, the one thing we didn't talk about real quick is mm-hmm. we have to go back to the Van Hammersmark character. Mm-hmm. So there was a big sequence where she's going to be the double agent. Londa discovers that she is... If the shoe fits, you must acquit. Right. <laughs> Johnny Cochran. Yeah. Um, the cast is the giveaway. Mm-hmm. Look, can we talk about her death for a minute? Her being choked out? Go ahead. Are you okay with that? It's a little rough. Yeah. Oh no, it's super violent. <laughs> yeah. And he's a and he's a terrible, terrible person. Yeah. Which we already knew. Again, this is that one burst out moment I was talking about earlier. Like he's kind of takes the quiet villainy yeah. approach. Like this seems a little out of character for him. No, I knew when you said that earlier. That's why I wanted to talk about this. Dieter in the bar would do this. Right. Yeah. Okay, so it's his burst out moment. He's been had or almost been had. He takes it out on her. He chokes her out on the floor. Mm-hmm. What a waste of Van Hammer's mark. Yeah. I ask you, Mm -hmm. with the way she goes down and the consequence of her dying the way she did Mm -hmm. and what her contributions to the film were, Mm -hmm. why is she even in this movie other than Tarantino had a thing for Diane Kruger at the time? (laughs) No, I'm serious. Well, she had to get she had to get the the characters, the bastard part, into there to to to, to screw up the Operation Kino even more because everyone else is dead. That's why she was there. Is it an unjust death? No, it's like don't you that part doesn't need to be there. I won't argue with that. I just think the Michael Fassbender character, which to me is also wasted in this movie, mm-hmm. who has an expertise in cinema, mm-hmm. as we talked to, with Mike Myers. Also, that whole scene is so weirdly casted. Yeah, don't you think she looks like Shoshana a little bit too? A little bit, yeah. yeah. I think maybe the first time I saw it, I thought maybe the oh that, that's her. They're like this. this okay, is okay. Raise your glass because to me too. Yeah. yeah. Same thing. Yeah. I thought the same thing. But her star status in the German movie scene again, yeah, it's it's indulgent, but like her being there kind of alludes to you know why people recognize her and it, it, it kind of stands out. It's the reason they can't leave. It's the reason they have to kind of stick around. Okay, you have prefaced this now. Go ahead and finish up with the final scene in the film. Okay, our final scene. Londa's turning himself over to the Allied forces, to Aldorain and Yudovich, and he's going to be written in the history books as the man that was a part of Operation Kino that stopped uh, Nazi Germany and they ended World War II on this day. So that's all well and good, but, you know, it's a pretty cushy little gig. He asked for property on Nantucket Island. He asked for all this. He asked for this and that. Sounds great. And for Rain... You know, they're bastards, this kind of propensity they have towards the Nazis. That's just not good enough with him. No one's going to know that he's walking around as a Nazi if he's living on his cushy beachfront property on Untucket Island. So what he's done before, he's going to give him something that he can't take off. And it's a swastika scar right on his forehead. Again, yeah, that's there, that's there for life now. And then, Matt, I know this is going to drive you absolutely crazy, but I love that Tarantino has the balls to do this as the as the characters look down into the camera. And Aldo Rain proclaims to Yudovich, this just might be my masterpiece, and we, we cut to black. 
I mean, this is ballsy enough for Tarantino to essentially tell the audience that he thinks this is the best film he's ever made. And you know what? For more times than that, I kind of got to give him give him this credit for what he's kind of given me in this film. You know, that takes some balls to do. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's very breaking of the fourth wall. They're not talking to Londo in that scene. They're talking to the cinema goers sitting in the theater at that moment. Okay, well, I would say he's wrong. Yeah. And here's the issue with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... I will give him credit. At least the the swastika scar has mm-hmm. been set up and we've seen it. So at least it makes sense in the context of the film. Yeah. You know what the problem with Londa is at the end of this movie? You know who doesn't kill Hans Londa? Shoshana. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know why? Because she's killed in a completely meaningless gun battle with, what's that guy's name? Voller? Oh, no, no, no. Zoller. Zoller. Yeah. Baron Zemo? Yep. In the projection room... After he kind of tries to rape her, but not really. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's not Shoshana. She's already dead. Like, Mm -hmm. literally isn't there Mm -hmm. other than the spectral image of her on the celluloid as the Nazis burn. Yeah. Because, again, I guess Tarantino remembered at the last second that the title of the movie was Inglorious Bastards. Mm -hmm. It's bullshit. But, again, Londa's doing a bastardish thing by... I know. Yeah. (sighs) Right. Again, he's do you think? Do you think from everything that that guy's done, him walking around with the swastika scar on his forehead, is just desserts? It's not just desserts, but it's what they have to take with what's been given to them. Yeah, they ended the war, but this guy's gonna essentially go scot free. So Aldo Rain will screw him over to the point that he'll lie to him about the deal that he's giving him and his buddy and shoot him in cold blood. Mm-hmm. But then is gonna hold to the agreement that he makes with Londa. Why? It's another Nazi scalp in his way to 100. Mm. The movie's been filled with deals and angling. And I'll go back to the Diane Kruger as Van Hammersmark moment and the Brad Pitt with the survivor from the end of that shootout in the bar scene. That's mm-hmm. the knockoff Hans Landa third Inquisition scene, right? That we talked about ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. And Brad Pitt for 20 fucking minutes talking about what defining a Mexican standoff is only to have Von Hammersmark shoot the guy in the head when he's agreed to put down his weapon. I don't understand why with the baddest of all the bad guys, now all of a sudden a handshake agreement matters. And even more so, I know he's going to walk around with a swastika tattoo on his forehead. Who cares? Yeah. If he's at Nantucket or some island or whatever he gets, it won't matter anyway because he'll be by himself. Mm-hmm. And you know what covers that up? Long hair and a hat. <laughs> it's just a horrible ending. And the biggest problem with all that that I just said is that it's not Shoshana because she's killed by a guy who is mostly insignificant unless this movie was a romantic movie, mm-hmm. sort of a spy romance thingy that Mr. and Mrs. Smith maybe comes to mind, mm-hmm. Brad Pitt, yeah. between Shoshana and that other guy. Oh, but that's yeah. not the movie either. And I think I can speak because a lot of your hatred and kind of kind of frustration with this film kind of really stems from the story and a lot of it is and and it's in tarantino in a lot of his films it's i could argue that kill bill one and two is just kind of like a very anticlimactic build uh, build up to the meeting of bill like you know you know what i mean tarantino likes to subject our expectations to what we've seen on film this is a man who's a student of thousands and thousands of films like us and trying to give it to us in just a, a, a very different way where we're not going to take the obvious way out. We're going to take the this crazy way out. We're not going to take the, the left turn this way. We're going to take the roundabout way to get there. 
And it's just something that he does. It's something that comes with the territory. So because of that, I'm willing to kind of give that a little, again, a, a pass. Am I giving everyone a pass? No, but because he's made countless films like that and entertaining films like that for that matter, I'm willing to say that about him. I don't know how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. If you give me a slate of a bad, if you give me a slate of a bad filmmaker mm-hmm. and say what's the best in this bad lot, I mm-hmm. can pick one too. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm getting to is what we talked about with Jackie Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. He suffers from the su- supreme success mm-hmm. of his first and maybe his first two films that he'll never ever ever live up to again. Mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are masterpieces, and. It, in a sense, curses him with, I have to find a way to be that guy all the time. I don't mind setups and payoffs. I don't mind a slow burn. Mm -hmm. But if you set the keg, I'm sorry, the TNT fuse on fire, Mm -hmm. then you can't give me yogurt instead of blowing up the the cask of TNT. And that's what this film is. It can't decide what it is. It's 15 stories smashed together. It's Mel Brooksy producers-like. It's hostiles. It's... And then... (sighs) There's so many things like I keep thinking to myself, I wish he'd asked me this question for this cask or this nightcap because mm-hmm. I could say, what's the worst? And there's 15 things I could say. What's what's the worst character in a Tarantino film? What's the worst ending in a Tarantino film? What's the most overindulgent moment in a Tarantino film? And I could go on and they mm-hmm. would mostly all be in this movie for me. But you're right. It is the way he makes films. And this is the final conclusion that I have after these first two movies. Mm-hmm. You ready for this? This is going to shock you. Okay. I don't really think I like him very much. Mm-hmm. I think his movies are fucking garbage. Mm-hmm. It's good. And you come from a very strict story perspective, too. Yeah. You want a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you're okay with deviating because you like films like Memento and like things things like that. But you need what you need in there. You need your, your rule of three. You need your payoffs. You need your character development in there. Whereas me, when I come from this, uh, I can kind of see where Tarantino does it because I... I do look for more things like the filmmaker aesthetic, like the editing, the music, the, the the camera placement, like in that opening scene and in the bar there. And kind of seeing that he's doing something, you know, because he is paying homage to a lot of films, homage to The Graduate and, and Jackie Brown. Sure. And so he's he's kind of a, a movie fan at play in a Hollywood production sandbox. I, I kind of envy the guy because... He gets to make films that literally no one else in Hollywood gets to make. Not Fincher, not Nolan, even them like have to stay within their boundaries. To me, Tarantino has no boundaries. Okay, I don't disagree with that. And any I don't know if there's anyone there that is really going to reel him in. I think what you've surmised about my point of entry and your point of entry mm-hmm. is spot on too. And, and as people that have followed the podcast, yeah. they know that where we come from on this comes from pretty much those two points of view. Me, story, and character. Yep. And you all and and some a little bit of production mm-hmm. and then a flip of production and et cetera stuff from you with a little bit of story and character. It's mm-hmm. just where we where we enter the the film critique it's spectrum. Just, it's interesting that he's kind of been the linchpin now. That's really divided a line between those two elements. Boy, that's well said. Yeah. So I think time now more than ever. Let's rate this film. We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. So Matt, were you? Where are you lining up with Inglorious Bastards? I don't think I need to be too more verbal about this. This is pure rock up for me. This movie's <laughs> awful. I hate it. Uh, we've been really hard on Serenity. We've mm-hmm. been really hard on a few other films. This is not worse than Serenity. Oh, no. I won't. I, I, no, 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 I wouldn't say that. I can't let you There's go. very little that's worse than Serenity. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's bad for me. Okay. I, I, I will never watch this movie again, and mm-hmm. I will go to my grave mm-hmm. with a red-hot hatred for this film. Okay. It's two and a half hours that's taken from me twice. It's five hours that are out of my life that I will never get back. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is absolutely awful mm-hmm. for me. It's atrocious. I hate it. Okay. Pure rock gut. Okay. <laughs> it's like filtered through a pair of your grandma's dirty pantyhose. That's how rock gut this is. That's your favorite analogy. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right, Matt, I hope you don't kill me on this one, no. but where I'm going to fall in on my rating, I'm rating this film top shelf, actually. Oh my God. And, uh, yeah, don't freak out. You know, I had an interesting viewing experience with this film as well. I tried to show my, my parents Reservoir Dogs for a movie night, family mo- movie night one time. No way. Thinking, you know, the story was unique enough for them to get enveloped in it. And no, my during the cutting off the ear torture scene, my dad just walked out and left the room, and I was like, oh my god, like, <laughs> this is not a film for them. I quickly realized that. Tarantino's a no-go zone. Mm-hmm. And then this film comes out, and my dad was like, do you want to go see that Inglorious Bastards out World War II movie? And I'm like... Yeah, us, you and me, Dad. Yeah, so yeah. I was really nervous watching this movie for the first time because I know how he is. He'll just like have just a random sequence of just gratuitous violence that's maybe uncomfortable for a lot of people. My dad loved this movie, and I don't know if it was the setting or just kind of the characters and the interplay, but you know, I was kind of able to get behind that too. And I'm with you, Matt. Those two sequences, the the basement pub scene and the opening bit, killed me. I was waiting for them to move on, but in repeat viewings i'm able to kind of peel back a little bit more of what he's doing and what is he doing of course is gratuitous gratuitous writing placement of music camera work but i love it i like and like i told you last week in in that opening of jackie brown of ordell uh and uh lewis and melanie kind of sitting around talking about guns that i could just sit and watch like eight hours of that if that was a television show i could totally be okay with it so there's just i have fun with those long drawn out dialogue bits. I have fun with how the, the the actors portray it. Christoph Waltz was given a gift like Samuel L. Jackson to just totally read Tarantino's dialogue. There's that instance when he's surrendering to the to the bastards and he says, and if you don't get Hitler and you don't get Goebbels and you don't get Gurning and you don't get Herman and you don't win the war tonight, like it's 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 very monotonous the the placement of the words and any other actor could fumble about that and make it just seem monotonous. But in, in his uh, uh, dialect, the way he's able to do it, it just it's so natural. It's just like Samuel L. Jackson saying motherfucker in one of these movies. It just works. Okay. Like you buy into them in this world. So that's where I say with that. And one other thing, and we play this game, Matt, too. Maybe, let's come back to this one in 15-ish years. Once he's retired, made film 10, and he's done, and everyone's kind of looking back at his stuff in retrospective, I would not be surprised if this film was at the top of that list, being his best film of his entire filmography. Um, yeah. Okay, let's revisit that. <laughs> there's no way that it'll ever beat Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs. Okay. So there's no way. On Rice Smile Films episode 1800, whatever <laughs> episode that is, yeah. that'll be our nightcap question. Did Inglorious Bastards age well? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, did it age well, yeah. Does that mean that I have to go back and watch it again? It does mean you might have to go watch it one more time. All right. (laughs) Excellent. So let's, like we always do, let's end with a little nightcap. You know, still talking about the man. You know, he does have a very unique style that we've talked about in both these episodes. So my question to you, Matt, is he writes mostly original material other than Jackie Brown, which is, for the most part, based on the book Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. 
if he went that route again for film number 10, what's a film or a property that you'd like to see him adapt? I think Django is a little bit westerny, mm-hmm. a little bit. Not really, but has a, a tone of that to mm-hmm. it, wilderness. Yeah. Okay, so what I want him to redo is John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm. In that movie, Jimmy Stewart plays what is one of the all-time best characters in cinema ever. And it's a man who's strong enough in his masculinity for the woman in him to thrive. In a wild setting where no one can read and justice is dispensed at the end of a six-shooter, he's educated and believes in law. And Ransom Stoddard, played by Jimmy Stewart, is so ripe to be developed in a modern way by Quentin Tarantino. Now, the title of that film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, is also very Tarantino-esque. Yeah. Because that's actually not who the movie's about. Mm -hmm. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is John Wayne. Yeah. And that's not who the main story, main character is. It's Ransom Stoddard. So I want him to take a crack at that. Okay. I don't want him to make it contemporary or set it in the asphalt wilderness or the asphalt jungle. I want him to keep it in... The West yeah. with contemporary actors. Okay. And what really works in that is he's got plenty of tabletop talking scene opportunities mm-hmm. where it's just heavy, heavy exposition. Yeah. He could have a field day with it. So who's playing the Jimmy Stewart part? Is it an actor that he's worked with already or a, uh, someone who's working with him for the very first time? Hold on a second. I'm going to let you answer what yours is on this okay because i want to get this right and i need to put a little thought into that already so you want me to say modern day yeah who are we casting as jimmy stewart's ransom stoddard yes wow okay all right excellent i'm going to totally disrupt your train of thought with my entry i know this is your all-time favorite uh comic adaptation but it just seems so ripe for what tarantino does which is again the dialogue the soundtracks the everything and i want it done as a miniseries Want Tarantino to adapt The Watchmen. Okay. Yeah, Matt just went silent. <laughs> but well, can look, I ask you a question? Do you actually do you like that graphic novel? I do, but like again, it's it's because it subjects expectations of what traditional like superhero lore is. Like, yeah, yeah, the the, the fucking squid coming down from the sky at, at the end is fucking ridiculous. I, I won't argue with there, but you know, for its placement in the eighties, for you know kind of adulting superhero tales at the time. And, you know, Zack Snyder did, you know, try to do it, but that, that's a big hunk of material to adapt in a two-hour-and-a-half movie. I know we're getting a Watchmen show on HBO this year, and it's kind of like a compendium piece to, to the graphic novel. No, I want him to tackle the source material, give it a soundtrack flair, have fun with the dialogue, make the violence gratuitous, like graphic novel cartoonish comic book that's like that's like right up his alley okay that I, makes that, I, yeah, I don't want to see that but okay. I, again it fits him to a T I know it's just like it's so anti everything you like mm-hmm. but I, I want to see that one okay yeah. that would be interesting yeah but a miniseries don't try and cram that into three hours of a movie yeah do 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 eight episodes of that <laughs> Tarantino on TV might actually be pretty good like I said I've been beating it over uh, beating it over the head with this but television does the same damn thing and the, the the kicker is the writing isn't as good the dialogue scenes are so freaking atrocious and so tedious that you're just like gosh looking at your watch like how much more do I got left of this Okay, I got it for you. Okay. I'm going to give you both. Okay. The Tom Donovan character 
played by John Wayne. Okay. And the Ransom Stoddard, Kate, Ransom Stoddard character played by uh, Jimmy Stewart. Okay. I want... And I'm actually kind of surprised that this hasn't really been done yet. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked this hasn't happened as far as this cast for this particular actor and this director. I want Hugh Jackman to play Ransom Stoddard. Okay. I think he'd be spot on. And I want Mickey Rourke to play Tom Donovan. Mm. I can't think of two more diametrically opposed people on film. And that's why that's that's why that story works. Okay. So there you go. Those are the two that I want. That's pretty good. That would be good. Why hasn't Mickey Rourke done a movie with Quentin Tarantino? I like know. It, as that came out of my mouth, I thought, wait, that's such I mean, an he, obvious swing and miss. I mean, he did Sin City, which was technically Robert Rodriguez, yeah. but yeah, that that's kind of, that seems obvious. Right. I don't know. Maybe this next one, we'll have to kind of see what it is. All right. Excellent. This has been a very interesting episode talking about Inglorious Bastards, but... Time's Upon Us. Uh, next week, we have the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And as I've mentioned before, this was the film I was most looking forward to in all of 2019. It's here. Again, I think of his films being events. You just have to go see them in the theater. And this is film nine for him. So I don't know what to expect, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where you're lining up on this spectrum, but Matt's not on a good trajectory for this one. <laughs> yeah, it's really been rather enlightening to me about what I think about him. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Tarantino fan. That's, yeah. I mean, if there's, I guess if there's nine films and I like four of them, it could be worse. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think I like him as much as I thought I did. Yeah. I'm hoping that this goes against every inkling inside of me that it's going to be all of what I just said was bad about Inglorious Bastards. Hollywood telling a movie about the movies with someone that's as out there as Charles Manson is. I mean, you consider two, like the three biggest bad guys in the history of bad guys are Charles Manson, Hitler, and Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. He's taking a crack at number two. Yeah. Or at, at the second one. Mm-hmm. And it's a movie set in a very interesting period, much like World War II, the 1960s. It's got Brad Pitt in it again. Mm-hmm. And it's a movie about Hollywood told by someone who's very pro-Hollywood. I got to tell you, you dude, I'm buckling up. I think this is going to be a hot fucking mess. You know it's going to be indulgent as shit. Oh, yeah. Excellent. So I'll be okay as long as there's a story in it. Like, tell me a story. Yeah. It doesn't have to be to the nose, beginning, middle, and end in that order, but there has to be, here's the good guy, here's the opposing force, this is the story of that. It has to be that. And for me, I can't wait for that 18-minute long dialogue scene in the bar. (laughs) It'll be there. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Excellent. I got to get going. There's a special rung in hell for those that waste good scotch. So I'm going to go finish this off. I'm going to wash the bastardization of my film-going experience off me right now in the shower because I can't take another minute of talking about this one. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Everybody, have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, and tune in and leave us an email at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Inglorious Bastards is property of Abanda Apart, Studio Babelsberg, and Universal Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. What's up, you bitch? I think this just might be my masterpiece.